Testing, there we go. If everyone could grab a seat, please. I'm a little, I'm leaning a little bit to the right. Is there, is there a reason for that? I'm more of a centrist. All right, if everybody can grab a seat, we'll go ahead and get started. We want to give uh, Peter as much time as we can this morning, so appreciate, uh, Peter, appreciate you coming. If you have your, your book, you can look on page six there and see a picture of uh, Peter and his wife and kids. Uh, Peter's not a stranger to us. He's been here a number of times, for which we're very thankful. If you don't know Peter, uh, to meet Peter is to like Peter. Uh, he's that kind of a personality. He's just a very winsome, uh, joyful person to be around. But also, uh, as we've gotten to know him, just enjoy the fact that he's he's orthodox through and through. He's committed to Christ. We see the work that he does over in Hungary and Budapest. And uh, just so thankful for his ministry there. He'll tell you more about that this morning. One of the things, if you're looking at the book, <clears throat> you can see that there's a, a border that they share with Ukraine. And that's going to, fill, uh, I guess, be part of your talk this morning and what he's already told us uh, last night about the work that that is now afforded for them as a church uh, in Hungary. So, uh, Peter, come and share with us. Thank you for being here this afternoon, this morning. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, once again, thank you for this brother. We thank you for his love for Christ, his love for the church, uh, his love to see uh, your church grow and for missions, his love for uh, the body of Christ, to see that they're ministered to and that they are um, fed with the gospel and the truth of your word. Bless him now this morning and bless us through him as he brings the word to us in Christ's name. Amen. Here. Thank you. Good morning and uh, greetings to you all uh, from my family and also from uh, the Presbyterian Church in, in Budapest, from your brothers and Sisters, And uh, you wouldn't think how burdened one can be uh, in a missionary, in a missions conference like this. So I came here as a young, restless Hungarian missionary. And yesterday I got uh, know from Ben that uh, if you have children with double-digit year old, you are not considered young anymore. So my son just turned 10 uh, two weeks ago. So please accept me as an old battled missionary from Hungary. It's so good to be with you. Uh, let's turn uh, our Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14, because the task I was given uh, is to, to give you an address not m m uh, about my ministry in Budapest, but more like about the the biblical principles of missions. So uh, I won't go into the actuals of uh, my and our ministry in Hungary, Ukraine, and Romania, but I would like to spend the time to examine the biblical principles behind our work uh, uh, in, in these countries. So I will read a few verses from uh, Acts 
chapter 13, the first three verses, and then uh, Acts chapter 14, the closing eight verses. As you know, Acts chapter 13 and 14 uh, describes to us the first missionary journey of uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And uh, in the first three verses, you will see the sending off of Paul and Barnabas. And in the closing verses in chapter 14, you will see how, how they return to Antioch. So let's start with uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And now, uh, chapter 14, from verses 21 to till 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and, they, uh, and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door, door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So, doing missions like the Apostle Paul, that's the topic of our missions uh, conference, but what does a Pauline mission look like? And you may think that it's an easy question. Peter, just go and preach the gospel. But history tells us that uh, it is a task with many difficult questions. The way how we should do missions and the what we should do in missions were in the center of several heated debates over the centuries. In the 1830s and 40s, a dispute developed in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America called the Board Debates. The debate was about who is responsible for doing missions, independent interdenominational organizations or the church herself. James Hanley Thornwell argued that Christ entrusted the church and the church only to do missions and spread the gospel in this world. Thus said Thornwell, when you lay down the proposition that the church is the missionary agency, you make every church member a member and lay upon him the responsibility of doing his duty. 
And this was quite of a prolonged debate. It's a good topic for a Sunday school, but I just want to uh, ensure that, that, that you see that uh, it's not a straightforward or easy thing how we should do missions. And then 90, la 90 years later, another great controversy broke out about missions, again in the Presbyterian Church. This time, John Gresham Machen protested the liberal reinterpretation of missions. Because then, the Board of Foreign Missions and Interdenomination Organizations published the book Re Rethinking Missions. And this book spread the following ideas. It is no longer which prophet or which book. It is whether any prophet, any book, any revelation, any right, any church is to be trusted. Thus is that Christianity finds itself, in point of fact, aligned in this worldwide issue with the non-Christian faith of Asia. The main idea of this book was that with the rise of communism and uh, uh, anti-religious movements, uh, the religions of the world needs to unite, find a common ground, and so we need to rethink and reinterpret missions. And for Machen, this was from the beginning to the end an attack upon the historic Christian faith. Because for Machen, it is not any prophet, only the prophets of the Lord. Not any book, but only the 66 books of the Bible, not any revelation, but only God's revelation, the, the revelation of the triune God in the scriptures, not any rite, but only the pure and adulterated worship uh, of God, and not any church, only Christ's church is to be trusted. And this conflict resulted in the expulsion of Machen from the Presbyterian church and led to the formation of what we know today as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So with these two historical references, my point is simply this. Doing missions was not an indifferent thing for faithful Presbyterians. We cannot take this topic lightly. We need to search the scriptures and look for the principles of uh, what our Lord laid down to fulfill this mandate faithfully and biblically. And from our text, I would like to show you three major biblical principles for doing missions in the Pauline way. So my three points will be plurality, priority, and polity. And uh, in case you noticed, thereby I'm showing you my full orthodoxy. I have three points, alliterating words, so you cannot get better than that. And I was so, so uh, thankful and relieved to hear Florian's three points as well. So, so that shows you something. So, first, plurality. So, uh, uh, the first verse uh, of chapter 13 introduces the church uh, at Antioch to us. We see the leaders here. And we see that five leaders are named. And in this verse, we find what the theologians call plurality of elders. In the Antioch church, there were at least five leaders. And this confirms the biblical principle that Christ governs his church through elders, both at the local, at the regional, and at the national level. 
Christ gave shepherds and teachers, shepherds' teachers, to his church, always in plural. This plurality is noticeable throughout the whole course of Paul's missionary journey. Not only were Paul and Barnabas sent out by elders, they were elders themselves. They were jointly on the mission field. The church at Antioch did not send a single missionary, but sent two of them for the work. And I think there is hardly a more excruciating thing for a missionary or a church mentor than to be alone on the mission field. And yet, it happens so often. And not surprisingly, the churches they planted were furnished with elders. That's why I, I read to you 1423, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Plurality in every church. So we see the plurality of elders in sending, in doing, and in completing the missionary work. But we not only find the plurality of elders, we also find the diversity, the diversity of elders as well. Think of the elders at Antioch, and you will find quite different origins and backgrounds and characters. So if you look at this list, you, you will see that there is Barnabas. We know that he was a Levite from Cyprus who has served the church so well, both in Jerusalem and in Antioch, that he was the given uh, the name Son of Encouragement. Then we have Simeon, who was called Niger, which is a Latin term for dark-skinned. He was probably from Africa. We have Lucius, uh, who came from Cyrene, which was a city in North Africa. Here we have Manan, who uh, was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. You know, this is the Herod who executed John the Baptist, who condemned our Lord Jesus as well. Manan must have come from a noble origin, yet we see him here as the preacher of the gospel. And then we have Saul, or Paul, a Jew from Tarsus, a learned Pharisee, who was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a most learned man, who was one of the, the greatest enemy of the church, but now he is the preacher of the gospel. So you see that the elders and the leaders in Antioch were not homogeneous men, but were from diverse backgrounds, were of different characters, and with various gifts. No single elder possesses all the gifts that are necessary for the life of the church. Instead, Christ dispersed these gifts among multiple leaders who together equip the church for building up the body of Christ. And these diverse gifts remind us that not only the elders, but every church member receives gifts from the Spirit. God calls different people to the church and gives various gifts to each of them. Some might have the gift of encouragement, like Barnabas. Others, the gift of boldness, like Saul. But we are to use the gifts that were given to us for the building of the whole body. And this plurality and diversity teaches us an important lesson. Think of these gifts as different fruits. And uh, if you were here uh, yesterday night or yesterday evening, we had a wonderful uh, uh, meal together, 
And uh, you might remember the fruit salad. And think of the, the church as a big bowl of fruit. The church is like a delicious basket full of mouth-watering fruits. What's, what's your favorite? Name it. Blueberries, pineapples, papayas, peaches, pears, apples, grapes, name it. Think of the church as this great basket of, uh, full of mouth-watering fruits. What can be better than that? Only one thing. The source they come from. Think of a, an orchard. An orchard in paradise with blooming and fruit-giving trees and bushes where you can have not just a handful uh, of the fruits, you can have everything uh, in abundance. And this orchard is Jesus Christ. The diverse gifts in the church are perfectly found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is unique. He has all the gifts. We do not, but he has all the gifts. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There will be no perfect church leader on this earth, nor any perfect church, but there is a perfect head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him there is encouragement, there is boldness, there is trustworthiness, there is affection, there is sympathy, there is love. There is no compromise in him. He can fulfill our heart's longings. He does not lack anything. Thus, my dear brother, let every gift that you receive through this church or through other churches remind you of the great fountain of blessing from where all these flow of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through plurality and the diverse gifts, Presbyterian missions will uplift and glorify our Christ. So the first verse uh, identified Antioch's leaders for us. The second verse now tells us what these leaders do in the church. We know who the leaders are, but what do they do? While they were worshiping and, uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. While they were worshiping. This is a special term in the Greek. Uh, uh, the word is liturgeo, where our word liturgy comes from. It was used not only among Jews and Christians, but also it was used uh, in the Greek and Roman world. It means to perform a public service. Now, in the ancient, ancient world, it was often the responsibility of the public officials to assume the costs of such service. So, so often, the high priest paid for the sacrifices. The governor erected buildings, libraries, or organized games. Public service was sacrificial in the times. But then this term was used uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the priestly service. And in our present text, uh, the most straightforward meaning is that the teachers and the prophets served the church with their gifts. What were their gifts? The gift of teaching. Probably it was in a context of a public worship service. So they were teaching the people. They were worshiping. They were serving the people and fasting. And fasting. You know, fasting was always connected to prayer in the Old Testament. 
we can say that fasting is nothing else than a strengthened form of prayer. When we do not take food and drink in order to somehow express our dependence on God and beseech him more powerfully. The teachers fasted, not only before big decisions, but we here read that while they were worshiping and fasting, it's, it's in a continuous tense. It means that was their regular activity. It was their custom to fast, to pray, to beseech. As you know, Acts puts great emphasis on prayer. That was what we heard in the word preached this morning. How important prayer was for, for the Apostle Paul and also uh, for the whole Bible, for our Lord as well. And that's what we see in the Acts. The Apostles saw that their main task is not distributing food, but to uh, pray and do the ministry of the word. The disciples gathered to pray for boldness and for the progress of the word. After his meeting with the risen Christ, as Florian pointed out, uh, Paul did not eat for three days, but fasted and prayed. Dependence on God through prayer gives power to our words and deeds. So we see the leaders at Antioch who teach the sense, the knowledge of Christ, but their ministry is not done only in public, but also behind closed doors. They bring the elect to the throne of grace so they can say no to the temptation of Satan, so that they can faithfully cling to Christ, so that they can abound in love and holiness. The leaders do not work for their own gain. They want to serve the dear folk of Christ. And is it not the pattern we see in Paul's missionary journeys? Is it not the pattern we see in his epistles? That's why he so often calls for prayer support. That's why he often calls uh, and teaches about prayer, because prayer is important. It's one of the main pillars of missionary activity. So that's our second principle for missions, is the priority of teaching and prayer. The priority of preaching and prayer. Preaching and prayer must characterize, first and foremost, the church planter and the missionary. Not administrative capabilities, though they are very handy at some times. Not financial expertise, though they can be useful as well. We need to send first and foremost faithful preachers and fervent prayers to the mission field. But again, there is more to that. Because the elders' ministry of word and prayer mirrors the ultimate ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate servant. Philippians 2 says, he is the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He ministered to us with the words of eternal life. He prayed for us even on his last night here on earth. He served us at the cost of his life. And after his death and resurrection, what do we see? That he is interceding for us. He is indeed interceding for us at the right hand of God, Romans 8, uh, 34. He ministers to us day by day uh, uh, through his word and spirit. Every sermon that builds up, every godly counsel we receive, every phone call we get from our brothers and sisters, 
flows from this ultimate ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So doing missions means nothing less than to love the serving Christ and follow his footsteps and serves and ministers others around us. Doing missions means that we prioritize preaching and prayer on the mission field. And thirdly, there is a principle of doing missions, the willingness to submit to each other. Look at our text, and we are at uh, uh, chapter 13, verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's after the Holy Spirit said to the leaders at Antioch that set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And I find it uh, a wonderful passage. Because if you read the testimony of Paul, you, you, you see that he was given this missionary call to the Gentiles right at his conversion. If you look at Acts 26, you will find that the Holy Spirit entrusted him with this mission from uh, day one. And Bible scholars tells us that it took about 15 years till he was sent off to the mission field by the Antioch church. So Paul was an apostle. He had an inspired call, inspired internal call to uh, evangelize the Gentile world. Yet Paul did not embark on this mission alone. He waited till God the Spirit convinced his fellow elders to send him and Barnabas to the mission field. He submitted himself to their decision. And I think by this, the Holy Spirit tells us that no Christian, not even the Apostle Paul, can work independently of the church. It is the church's task to supervise the missionary activities. That's what we see in Paul's journey. He was sent out by the session of presbytery at Antioch, and he reported to this session when he got back. That's what we read at the closing verses, uh, chapter 14, when they arrived and gathered the church together, 27, they they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Though Paul was an apostle, but he was not acting alone. He respected the authority of the church that sent him out. And that's what we see in the next chapter. I won't go into details, but Acts 15 uh, speaks about how Paul, Peter, and James submitted themselves to the synod uh, at Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't approve self-appointed preachers and missionaries. He wants every one of us, even the leaders, to submit to the biblical government of the church. Neglecting this principle caused tremendous havoc uh, to missions. And we see missionaries in our lands who come from confessional churches but answer to no one. A Presbyterian missionary invited Benny Hinn as the speaker for their conference. Another started a so-called beach ministry, which was nothing else than vocation in disguise. Others went to the mission field against brotherly counsel because they had a romantic notion about Europe. And after a year or two, they uh, got back to the States uh, because they said that we have a different call from the Lord now. And they left behind a distressed church plant and burnt a lot of money. 
Many of these situations could have been avoided if there were a biblical oversight of a church and a presbytery. But we cannot stop here. The obedience and submission we saw in Paul's missionary journey directs our attention to the perfect submission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5.8 says, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And uh, Philippians 2.8 says to us that he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ was obedient. But this obedience was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of love. He loved so much. Uh, he loved us so much that he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father's will, even to the point of death. So a Presbyterian missionary shall portray the love of the obedient Jesus Christ in the willingness to submit himself to his leaders and Christian brothers. So what is a Presbyterian mission look like? It is not done uh, alone. It puts preaching and prayer as priority. It gladly submits himself to the biblical government of the church. But as you see, these principles serve a major purpose. To display the richness, the excellency, the beauty, the power, the fullness of our dear Savior. Missions shall be all about Christ. In our message, in our character, in our way of conduct. And when Christ is seen in all of that, now then we reach our goal. And then we can say that we did indeed a mission in a Presbyterian fashion. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we come before you humbly, but also gladly. Because from your word, we could see our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We could see his beauty. We could see his power, his excellency, his all-sufficiency. Oh, what a dear Savior do we have. Oh, Lord, we praise you for him. We praise you for our king, for our head. We praise you for our great shepherd. And we are so blessed that we can be his servant, his flock, his bride, even his friend. So, Lord, we ask that you bless us with a heavenly and strong vision of our Christ, that we can go and do missions wherever we are, so that our hearts will be full with the knowledge and love of our Savior, so that our lips cannot contain the words of the gospel, but it will be poured out to everybody around us. Oh, help us, Lord, that we would use our gifts to the building of, up uh, Christ's body, that we can be obedient and uh, submissive to the government you placed uh, over us, so that we can, we can serve and minister to others around us. We especially pray for those on the mission field, 
for those who are sometimes in a very tough situation. We pray for them that you encourage them, strengthen them, and keep them faithfully uh, by your word. We also ask for those who, who contemplate on, on going to the mission field. Oh Lord, we need workers. We need men. We need, we need people who will help us. Yes, there is such, such a great field of harvest. Lord, send laborers into your harvest. Please bless the churches, the senders, the supporters, the prayers. Oh, we need all this, Lord. But we pray because we see that all these are not coming from men, but it's coming from you. And we want to rest assured that you will give everything we need through your love and abundance. So please bless us with your word and spirit. In Christ's name, amen.